The reading is from Romans 8, 1 to 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Well, good evening, Unichurch. Great to be back with you as we study this most important letter of the New Testament. You might remember all the way back in November, we looked at Romans chapter 3, and there we saw Paul's great revelation, the great revelation that the righteousness of God has been manifested, not by obeying the law, but by faith in Jesus' work on the cross. You might remember we said that lots of people think that that is the most important chapter of, of the Bible. 500 years ago, Martin Luther, the German reformer, said of those words, Romans 3, 21 to 26, that they are the chief point and the very center place of the letter and of the whole Bible. If Romans 3 is the most important chapter in the Bible, then the chapter that we're in now, Romans chapter 8, it's probably the most encouraging part of the Bible. John Piper, a Christian preacher and writer you might be familiar with, thinks that this is the most important chapter of the Bible because of the great blessing that it promises to Christians. And in Romans 8, Paul outlines in great detail the work of God for his people. He outlines God's work in the past, he outlines, he outlines God's work in the present, and he outlines God's work in the future. And the blessing of God's work in these three spheres, that blessing on the Christian's life. In the past, he tells us that God chose us. He predestined us, as Paul's word, for salvation. In the present, he tells us of the new mind, the new life, the new family the Christian has been brought into. 
And in the future, he tells us of the new creation that the Christian will enjoy. And as Paul covers this scope of God's work, the past, present, and future of God's work, he shows us how this isn't simply theory, dry, dusty theology. This work of God in these three spheres is what enables us as Christians to endure, to endure the suffering we all face in this fallen world as we await that new world that's coming. Romans 8 is an amazing chapter of the Bible, and that's why at Uni Church we're going to spend four weeks looking in great detail at this chapter. Some, some of you might think that's a long time to spend in one chapter of the Bible, uh, but let me reassure you, we could have spent an awful lot longer. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, was one of the most famous preachers of the 20th century, and as he preached through Romans 8, he spent 77 weeks, 77 sermons on this one chapter. So let me reassure you, you're getting off pretty easy. This morning, this evening, sorry, uh, we're looking at verses 1 to 11 of chapter 8, which I've titled The New You. And in this section, Paul outlines the present benefits of the Christian life. And there's a little bit of future hope thrown in at the end. In these 11 verses, Paul outlines the new status that the Christian enjoys in verses 1 to 4. He outlines the new mind that the Christian has in verses 5 to 8. And he outlines the new life that the Christian has been given by the Spirit in in verses 9 to 11. Let me say that again. Paul outlines the new status the Christian enjoys, the new mind the Christian has, and the new life that the Christian has been given. But before we actually get to these points, before we jump into the passage itself, it's going to be helpful if we clear a few weeds from our thinking. One of those weeds, one of those things that gets in the way when we're trying to study the Bible is the idea of applying the Bible. And the other weed uh, that comes up when we study this passage is the confusion that exists around the Holy Spirit. So we're going to clear away those two weeds, and then we're going to jump into the text. And of course, we're we're going to need God's help to do that So I'm going to pray and ask him to help us now, and I'd love it if you prayed with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come together to read your word, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us see it clearly and to see ourselves more clearly in its light. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us come to the Bible with the question, how can I apply this to my life? How do I apply what the Bible says? And let me be really honest, as a teacher of the Bible, as someone who teaches the Bible uh, as their job, that's a question I often ask myself. How do we apply this text? And it's not necessarily a bad question to ask, because throughout the New Testament, Paul and the other writers of the letters include really clear application points. We're going to see that in a few weeks whenever we get to Romans chapter 12. And there, in Romans 12, in light of everything that he said in chapters 1 to 11, Paul outlines some really clear, really helpful application points. 
how the truth of what he's expounded applies to the Christian's life. He tells the, the Christians in Rome that he's writing to how to think rightly of themselves, how to serve one another, how to live in harmony with one another. The Bible is chocked full of application points. However, if we come to every passage and try to find application points in those passages, we run a real risk of misunderstanding the passage. Because sometimes Paul isn't writing this to tell us to do anything. He's simply outlining facts. If we come to every passage of the Bible and say, how can I apply this? There's a real risk that we can misapply the text, misunderstand the text. For those of us involved in teaching the Bible, whether it's in a growth group, whether it's in youth group or Sunday school, or even here at the front, if we are always looking for an application point, that can be quite a risky thing to do. You can risk mishandling this text. And sadly, lots of Christians, when they come to Romans chapter 8, the chapter we're in, they come to it and they think, right, here's a list of things that I need to do. Here's a list of commands that I need to follow in order for this to be true. But at the very offset, as we look at Romans 8 in particular, we need to notice that this chapter, Romans 8, is not an application chapter. Paul is not dishing out a list of commands to the Roman Christians. He isn't saying, as a Christian, here's how you should think, here's how you should live. He's not saying that at all. Rather, in Romans 8, this wonderful chapter is about the new status that we have, not that we work towards. This new mind that we have, not that we try to grow ourselves. This new life that we have, not that we try to earn. Romans, this wonderful chapter, is descriptive not prescriptive. Romans 8 is about the identity that the Christian has, not the activity that they have to engage in. Romans 8 is about the reality the Christian enjoys, not a list of rules for the Christian to follow. Let me say that again. Romans 8 is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's about identity, not activity. It's about the reality of the Christian's life, not the rules that they have to follow. And so, as we work through this passage, if you are a Christian watching this evening, please do not think, okay, here's what I must do. Rather, think to yourself, if you're a Christian, here is what I am. Here is what I have. We love lists of rules to follow. Uh, Pick up any self-help book on your shelf or the bookstore's shelf, and you'll find 10 steps to create the new you, 12 rules you must follow to bring order to the chaos of your life. But let me be really, really, really clear. The Bible is not a self-help book. The Bible is not a self-help book. And what we have here in Romans 8 is not the activity you must engage in to have a new status, a new mind, a new life. It's the identity you already have as a Christian, the identity you have in Christ. 
As I said, Paul will eventually get to some practical application points, but as we're reading this passage together, please don't rush to apply it. Don't rush to apply it. Rather, rest. Rest in the knowledge that this is what God has done for you and that this is what God has done by his Holy Spirit to you. The first weed we need to clear out of our minds as we look at Romans 8 is the rush to apply the Bible. And the second weed we need to clear away is some of the misconceptions that lots of Christians have about the Holy Spirit. You see, Christians get really confused about the Holy Spirit. Some Christians think that the Holy Spirit is a sort of mystical force, an energy that only some Christians have access to. They think that there are sort of two tiers of Christians. There's regular Christians down here, and then up here, there's the Spirit-filled Christians. Likewise, there are two types of churches. There are regular, boring old churches here, and then there are Spirit-filled, Christ- spirit-filled churches over here. What we have in Romans 8 might be the most important chapter in the Bible on the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, in this one chapter, 39 verses in total, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 21 times. In one chapter, he is mentioned 21 times. Now, you compare that with the rest of Romans. In Romans 1 to 7, and in Romans 9 to 16, in those 15 chapters, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 15 times. In this one chapter, he's mentioned 21 times, more than the rest of the book combined. If you want to understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit, you have got to get your head around Romans chapter 8. And what we find in Romans chapter 8 is that, and let me make this really clear, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. There are not two types of Christian, spiritual Christians and non-spiritual Christians. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9 of our reading. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Of course, we don't have time uh, to look at everything the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. Perhaps we will do that one day. But know this, if you are a Christian, if you have placed your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. There are not Spirit-filled Christians and non-Spirit-filled Christians. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit, because the work of the Holy Spirit is pointing us to Jesus and uniting us to Jesus. So if you love the Lord Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. If you have faith in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. If you belong to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9 again. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Now, with those two weeds out of the way, let's get into the passage itself. 
last week, uh, you probably remember, uh, you can check it out on YouTube if you missed it, we saw the new normal of the Christian life. The Christian will struggle with sin. If you're a Christian, you will struggle with sin. That shouldn't be a shock to you. That is normal. Here's what Paul says in verse 22. You can see it just above chapter 8 if you've got a Bible open. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. It's so easy, isn't it, when you're struggling with sin, wrestling with temptation to doubt your status before God. And whatever that particular sin is for you, whether it's anger, greed, lust, pride, envy, whatever it is, if it's not on that list, whatever that sin is, often are wrestling with those sins, those times when we give in again, those struggles, when those rebellious attitudes are revealed, those rebellious attitudes towards God, when they're revealed, we can begin to doubt our status we can begin to doubt our status as Christians, can't we? Do you not know? You not, if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you will know those struggles. With that struggle in mind, with that doubt in mind that maybe God won't forgive me, maybe I'm not really saved, let me read verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the new status that the Christian enjoys. They are no longer condemned. If you are trusting in Jesus, there is no condemnation from God towards you. What an amazing truth. What a great verse uh, to commit to memory. It's pretty easy. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are trusting in Jesus, if you have repented and believed, there is no condemnation from God towards you. That is your new status, no longer condemned. How is it possible that the Christian, even though they continue to sin, are no longer condemned? Let me tell you, it's not because of your good behavior. It's not because of the progress you've made. Let's read verses 3 and 4. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. How is it possible? Not because of something that you did, but because of what God did. Do you see that? God did by sending his own son. You see, whenever Jesus lived on earth, he never sinned. He always obeyed God. He fully met the righteous requirement of the law. Let me put it another way. If this life was an exam, Jesus got 100% 
something no one else has ever done. And if we place our trust in the Lord Jesus, Jesus gives his righteousness to us. If we place our trust in the Lord Jesus, he gives his 100% grade to us. His 100% becomes our 100%. But the thing is, Jesus didn't just give us his righteousness. He gave us forgiveness too. There's a difference between being perfectly righteous and being forgiven, and we need both. Jesus wasn't only righteous on our behalf, Jesus was also condemned on our behalf. When he hung on that cross, when he died in our place, Jesus was condemned so that we could escape condemnation. His condemnation rescued us from condemnation. To stretch the exam illustration even further, probably to breaking limit, Jesus doesn't just offer us his perfect grade. He also goes to detention in our place. He suffers the consequences of our failures. He removes our condemnation from us and he gives his righteousness to us. Verse 4, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. When you are struggling with sin, maybe later on this evening, maybe later on this week, remember, if you are trusting in Jesus, there is no condemnation from God towards you. You are, if you're trusting in Jesus, as perfect in God's sight as Jesus is. If you're trusting in Jesus, God is as likely to abandon you as he is to abandon Jesus. This is the amazing new status that the Christian has. Not that they have to work for, that they have, that God has given to them. But the Christian does not just have this new, not condemned status. They've also been given a new mind. And that's what chapters, uh, verses 5 to 8 is all about. Let's read 5 to 8 together. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. We saw really clearly last week, didn't we, that even though the Christian has this new mind, Paul introduced that concept back in chapter 7, even though they have this new mind, that doesn't mean that there is no temptation to sin. Despite that temptation to sin, though, the Christian still has this new mind, what Paul here calls the mind of the Spirit. In other words, the mind given by the Spirit, the mind renewed by the Spirit. If you cast your eye over those verses again, verses 5 to 8, you'll see Paul draws three negative comparisons between what he calls the mind of the flesh and the mind of the Spirit. 
He doesn't say an awful lot about the mind of the Spirit. Rather, he spends most of his time focusing on the mind of the flesh. And the idea is that these two things are polar opposites. Whatever is true of the mind of the flesh is completely untrue of the mind of the Spirit. Whatever the mind of the flesh can't do, the mind of the Spirit can do, and vice versa. They are polar opposites. Look at the three comparison he, he draws in those verses. He says, the mind of the flesh is governed by death. The mind of the flesh is hostile to God. The mind of the flesh cannot obey God or even please God. It doesn't look good, does it? Now, before we think about what those three things mean, it'll be helpful to note what Paul does and doesn't mean by the word flesh here. Let me tell you what Paul doesn't mean first. Paul does not mean that our sinful desires only come from our bodies, that which is made of flesh, and that our mind or our brains are neutral. No, no, no. Flesh isn't about the opposite of the mind, the opposite of thinking. Throughout the Bible, flesh is a sort of catch-all term used to represent humanity's rebellion against God including their mind, maybe even especially in their mind. In chapter 7, do you remember at the very end, at verse 24, uh, Paul laments. He cries out that prayer that most Christians, all Christians have prayed at some point. Do you remember his words? Who will rescue me from this body of death? But whenever Paul talks about the flesh and the body, he's not simply talking about our physical longings. Whenever you hear the phrase bodily desires or the desires of the flesh, you might think of food or sex. Paul isn't primarily talking about the desires for food and sex, although they may be included. No, no, no. Whenever Paul talks about the flesh, when he talks about the body, he's talking about all of our rebellious desires against God and against His rule. And the Christian then they're still in the body. He'll talk about that in the next section on the new life. They're still in the body. They still have their flesh, but they have two minds. They have the mind of the Spirit, and they have the mind of the flesh. We saw this again in chapter 7. Here's verse 22 again. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. So there's the first mind. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. You see, he's got these two, the Christian has two minds, the mind of the flesh, the mind of the spirit. But here in Romans chapter 8, Paul is drawing a contrast between those who have the mind of the spirit and those who only have the mind of the flesh. In other words, he's talking about the Christian and the not yet Christian. The Christian has the mind of the spirit. The non-Christian, someone who hasn't placed their trust in Jesus, only has the mind of of the flesh. And what he says about these people who do not yet have the Holy Spirit, it's pretty offensive. See what he says? Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God? That's a pretty radical thing to say, isn't it? What it means is, is that if someone is not in Christ, if they haven't placed their trust in the Lord Jesus, if they haven't been united to Him by the Holy Spirit, then nothing that they can do 
can please God. No amount of charity will please God. No amount of campaigning will please God. And that doesn't mean that those things, that those with the mind of the flesh do, that those things are inherently bad in and of themselves. They may do apparently good things, but if the person doing those apparently good things is not united to Jesus, if they have not escaped condemnation through his condemnation, if they have not received righteousness from his righteousness, then that person, no matter how many apparently good things they do, they cannot please God. It's pretty offensive. I wouldn't make this up. I wouldn't make this up if I was trying to convince people of a new religion. But this is what Paul says. Of course, if you've been following along in our Romans series, this won't be an entirely new concept to you. Back in Romans chapter 3, the most important chapter, we were thinking about works, the good things that we do that we think might just make us righteous in God's sight. But what we see here in Romans 8, it's like what we saw in Romans 3, but it's, it's even more extreme. What we see here is that those things that we think are good, whatever those things might be, your pursuit of social justice, your pro-life rally, your sexual purity, those things that we think of as good. In Romans 3, Paul says they won't make us righteous before God. Only faith will do that. But here in Romans 8, Paul says not only will they not make us righteous, they won't even please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The good things they do may even align with the system of God's law. They may look like they're keeping God's law, but Paul says, verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. They will not please God. I think this is probably the most offensive thing that Paul has said in Romans. You might disagree with that. I'd love to hear from you if you think that's the case. But I think that is the most offensive thing Paul has said. And if you're watching this evening and you're not yet a Christian and you've been following the logic of what we've seen from the Bible, you're probably offended. Rightly so. You should be offended. This is offensive. But I want you to just pause in your shock and your offense for one, for one moment, and we'll think about it just a little bit more deeply, and I hope you'll see that it's actually really good news. Because you see, what it means is, is that you can stop trying to work to please God. You can stop trying to balance the scales of your life. You can stop trying to make up for your own inherent selfishness. You can stop trying to prove to God that you're good enough for him. You can stop trying to get into God's good books because the thing is, you can't. If that was the end of the story, that would be terrible news. But it's not. It's much, much easier than that. All you need to do please God. 
All you need to do to get in God's good books is to place your trust in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus' goodness to get you into God's good books. Trusting in his condemnation on the cross to avoid being condemned yourself. It really is that easy. What that means is, is that once you have trusted in Jesus, and for the Christian watching this evening, now that you have trusted in Jesus, you've received your new status, you've received your new mind by the Holy Spirit, you are now free to live a life honouring God, knowing that you can, in fact, please Him. Not because of anything good in and of yourself, but because you have set your mind, your new mind, on what the Spirit desires, not on what the flesh desires, not on your own desires. I'll say it again. The Bible is not a self-help book. This is not a 10-step program to follow. This is not 12 rules for life to get you access to heaven. All you have to do is place your trust in Jesus. And for those who have trusted in Jesus, as we've seen, they will receive a new status. They don't earn a new status, they receive a new status. They receive a new mind. And finally, in verses 9 to 11, they receive a new life. I said at the very start that Romans 8, the entire chapter, covers the past, present, and future blessings of the, that the Christian enjoys. And so far we've seen some of the past and some of the present benefits, blessings that the Christian enjoys. And there's a lot more of all three uh, spheres coming in the following weeks. But here, in these verses, 9 to 11, Paul speaks first of all about the present, but then he moves towards the future. Let's read those verses again, verse 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Again, really, really important to remember, Romans chapter 8 is prescriptive. Sorry, Romans chapter 8 is descriptive, not prescriptive. Romans chapter 8 is about the Christian's identity, not about the Christian's activity. As the Christian struggles with their own sin, Maybe they're looking for something they need to do to get back into God's good books. But that is not what Romans 8 is about. Romans 8 is descriptive of the Christian's status, mind, life. It's not prescriptive telling them what to do. And as the Christian struggles with their own sin, we saw this earlier, it's so easy to think that God has abandoned them. Or if he hasn't abandoned them yet, he's probably going too soon. I want you to notice the security that Paul offers to the struggling Christian. He's told them about their new status. There's no condemnation. He's told them about their new mind, the mind of the Spirit that can please God. 
But now he's telling them, not only do they have a new status, not only do they have a new mind, they have a whole new life. They are secure. This new life is a resurrection life. In verse 10, Paul outlines the present new life that the Christian has. And then in verse 11, he outlines the future new life that the Christian will have. And we'll think about the present first, verse 10. If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. What this means is this new life that the Spirit gives, it does not mean that the Christian won't die. Of course, there's been Christians around for 2,000 years now, and we know that Christians do, in fact, die. But whenever Paul was writing this, remember, these were first-generation Christians, and some of them were beginning to die. Some of them were dying at the hands of uh, the Roman persecution. Some of them were dying at the hands of Jewish persecution. Some of them were just dying of old age. They trusted in Jesus later in their life, and they were dying. And they were starting to wonder, well, hang on. Don't we have new life? Don't we have resurrection life? How come Christians are dying? What Paul says here is that as residents of this fallen world, we will all, every Christian, unless Jesus returns, will taste death. However, that's not the end of the story, and we'll see that in chapter 11. Every Christian will taste death. But does that mean that they don't have resurrection life now? No. That's what these verses are about. The Christian now enjoys resurrection life. Not the final resurrection life, but still resurrection life now. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, what on earth does resurrection life mean? What it means is, is that the life that the Christian has, the Christian's life, is a new life. It's not a life that's simply been reset. It's a life that's been resurrected. We all know what it means to reset something, don't we? You know that panic uh, whenever your computer stops working. You're scrolling around on your trackpad and the mouse doesn't move anymore. You get the beach ball of death on your Mac. Um, if you're using a Windows, I think it's a little spinny blue wheel or something. And your, your computer's completely frozen. And the only thing left for you to do is to hit restart. You restart your computer. You reset your computer. And hopefully, it'll start up again. And hopefully, if it starts up again, you haven't lost what you were working on when it froze. You breathe that sigh of relief when the document is still there. But the thing is, even though you've reset your computer, you know that it's still a bit slow. It's still a little bit laggy. Compare the relief of resetting your computer with the feeling of getting a brand new computer. You take it out of the box. You open up the screen if it's a laptop. There are no fingerprints on the screen. There are no chips off the edges. You turn it on and it turns on instantly, ready to go in seconds. You haven't simply reset your computer. You've got a brand new one. The Christian's life is not simply reset. 
Sadly, there are some denominations and some traditions out there that teach that becoming a Christian is simply hitting the reset button on your life. You become a Christian, you're reset, and you've now got to work to keep in God's good books. You've got a blank slate, but you've got to make sure that slate stays clean or you're in trouble. The Christian life is only a reset, but the Bible says the exact opposite of that. The Bible says the Christian's life hasn't been reset. It's been resurrected. It's a brand new life. Not a reset life, but a resurrection life. Of course, this new life is intricately connected with the new mind and the new status that the Christian has. They're, they're, they're completely combined. You can't separate them out too much. But you're still in your body. You're still subject to death. And so this resurrection life is real. And Paul reassures the Christians in Rome that it is real. And we can see that new life in ourselves when we become Christians. We see it when our priorities shift. We see it when we treat people differently. We see it when we, when we react differently, differently when people sin against us. We see it when those things that we used to revel in, even though they may still tempt us from time to time, those things that we used to revel in, they no longer master us. We see it when we want to change, and we see it whenever we do change, when we make progress. Slowly, of course, but we do make progress. That is part of the fruit of this new life that you've been given. I said before that there's no such thing as the perfect Christian, but every Christian makes progress because every Christian has been given a new mind and a new life by the Holy Spirit. And this new life, this resurrection life that the Christian has now is a glimmer it's a foretaste. It's a five-second preview of the new resurrection life that is to come. Look at verse 11. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. You see, the end point of Christianity is not floating off to heaven when you die. It is true that if you're a Christian and you die before Jesus returns, you will go to be with Jesus. The Bible's really clear. Those who die in Christ will go to be with Christ. However, that is not the end of the story for the Christian. In fact, as far as I can tell, the Bible never uses the phrase, going to heaven when you die. That is not the emphasis. That is not the end of the Bible's story. No, no, no. The Bible says that one day, not that we go to heaven, but that heaven comes to earth. And the Christian, those who've been given this new status, this new mind, this new life, will enjoy heaven on earth in what the Bible calls the new creation. If we die now, we go to be with Christ, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story in the Bible is the new creation. A new creation, a physical creation, a real, physical, tangible world 
A world quite like our own in some ways, but also quite different, most notably in what it no longer has in it, a new creation where there is no sin, no suffering, no sickness, no grief, no pain, no death. This new creation is what the Christian hopes for. This new creation is what the Christian lives in light of. This new creation is what the Christian is preferring, preparing for. And Paul ties it up in Jesus' own resurrection. You see, just as Jesus died and then rose again, so the Christian, even though they may die, will be raised from the dead. And like Jesus, they will never die again. And the new life that the Christian enjoys today is a faint glimmer of that new life that they will enjoy. Paul will flesh this out uh, later in Romans 8. He says that the present sufferings of this age do not compare with the glory that is to come. But the new life that the Christian enjoys today is just a faint glimmer of that glory that is coming, that glory when we receive the end of our new life, the beginning of our new resurrection life, the resurrection from the dead and the life everlasting. That's about all we've got time for uh, this evening from Romans 8. Uh, if, again, if any of this is new to you, if you've got something you'd like to push back on, if you've got any questions, any prayer requests, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. Jeremiah raised the Welcome to Church cards with us earlier in the service. Uh, the link will be beneath me just now. Please do fill one of those out. If you've got some questions, some comments, some complaints, some prayer requests, I'd love, love, love to hear from you. It's such a joy uh, to receive those. If you're not yet a Christian and you think that this idea of a new life, a new mind, a new status is something that you're interested in, please fill out one of those cards and I'll be in touch with you. You can also sign up for the life course. That, what Emily talked about earlier, in the life course we explain really, really clearly exactly how Jesus' death, Jesus' condemnation rescues us from condemnation and how we can receive that gift that he offers us. Please do fill out one of those welcome cards. Please do register for the life course. Maybe you'll do it during the next song. But I'm going to close now with a word of prayer, and I'd love it if you prayed with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to be condemned in our place so that we can know for certain that there is no condemnation for us. We thank you that he came and lived a righteous life again in our place and offers us that righteousness, his perfect score. Father, we thank you for the immense security that this offers us. Thank you that through Jesus' work, through the work of the Holy Spirit in showing us and applying this to us, thank you that we can be absolutely certain that there is no condemnation for us. Thank you, not only that you save us, but that you give us this new status, that you give us this new mind, that you give us this new life as we await the life everlasting. Father, we pray 
that you would send the Lord Jesus soon so that we can enjoy that new creation. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.